I invite you this morning, dear friends, to turn with me to Ruth. It's the eighth book of the Bible after the Pentateuch, then Joshua, Judges, and Ruth. You'll find it on page 187 or on page 210, depending upon the copy of the Pew Bible under the seat in front of you. Let me, by way of introduction, just give you a brief explanation of why we're here and where we're going. Before Advent, at the end of last year, we gave our concentration, our focus to the book of Jonah. We typically go back and forth from an Old Testament book to a New Testament book to an Old Testament book to a New Testament book. We studied the book of Jonah. And then from that, we moved into the Advent season where we were in the New Testament looking at various passages of why Jesus came. Today, we're going to go back now to the Old Testament and the book of Ruth. And then that will lead us up to the time of Lent, the Lenten season or the Easter celebration where we'll go back to the New Testament and we'll be looking at the person of Christ in the Gospels, why he came and what it is that he has done for us. So we're in the book of Ruth for the next four weeks, one chapter per week. This is only the only, some say, and one of very few, one of only a couple of books that actually has a concentration of focus on women, on, on Ruth herself. Some say Esther, but this is the only book, some say, that actually comes from the perspective of women and gives us a beautiful picture uh, of how life was in, the, in the, that particular day, the context of that writing. Today, as we open up this book, we're going we're gonna to focus on the salvation that is ours, the same salvation that was extended to Ruth the Moabitess. Friends, this is good news for us. Ruth was not a Jew. Ruth was not an Israelite. Ruth was a Gentile like you and me. And yet the gospel was extended to her, even in the Old Testament, through the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's what we're going to find in this book and in this chapter. Let's give our full attention then to the reading and preaching of God's holy, infallible, and inerrant word. Ruth chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Mahlon and Kilion. They were Ephraites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab to live there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other named Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Mahlon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food or bread for them, Naomi and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where they had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you as you have shown for your dead and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them and they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have more sons who could become your husbands? 
Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought I were, there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. At this they wept again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and to her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me ever so severely if anything but death separates me from you. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them, and the women explained, Can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she said. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem just as the barley harvest was beginning. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. What do we know about God's word? The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Father, right here in the pages of the Old Testament, you give us a beautiful picture of the salvation that's ours in Jesus the Christ, our kinsman, redeemer, our closest relative, that friend who sticks closer than a brother. Open our eyes then to behold the beauty of this salvation that's ours, that we might wrap our minds around it and live our lives in response to it, we pray. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Please, friends, be seated. Well, I haven't bought any jewelry lately, uh, but when I do and when I have bought jewelry, the same thing always happens. You know, you're stepping up to that glass countertop and you're looking at all of the jewelry down inside and you ask the attendant to show you this one particular piece that you are pointing out. And what does he or she always do first? She or he reaches under the counter and they grab that black piece of velvet and they lay it down on the countertop and then they take the piece of jewelry that you want to look at and they put it right there on that black piece of velvet. Why do they do that? They always do that because the black velvet then helps the diamond really sparkle and really shine. It springs forth right off of the, if they put it on the glass counter, it would seem to kind of just be meshed in with all of the other jewelry. But putting it on that piece of black velvet, it causes it to punch. It causes it to bounce right off of the countertop into your eyes to make you want it more than anything else in all of those other countertops. That's really what we have here in the beginning of the book of Ruth. There is a black backdrop, a black piece of velvet that is laid out before us. But Ruth's black backdrop is one that is filled with suffering and pain and death and hunger and disappointment 
and rejection. And yet in the midst of all of those things, that black backdrop, the sparkle, the pop, the shine of her Savior, the very one who gives her eternal life, bounces off of the page, springs from the page uh, uh, that, that we read right before us. Our lives many times, friends, in the backdrop of our life, when we're filled with pain and suffering, you may be experiencing it today. You may be here today and you're, you're, you're experiencing a poor diagnosis. You're, you're experiencing poor health. You've just lost a loved one. You've been rejected by very close friends. You have some ailment of some sort. Our typical fashion in response to that, in our humanness, in our sinfulness, is to take our eyes off of, exactly what Pastor Belanger said a moment ago, to take our eyes off of the one that the author of Hebrews tells us to fix our eyes on. Instead of seeing the beauty of the shine of the Savior and the salvation that he promises to us, the resurrection hope that is ours that no one can ever take away from us, we fix our eyes on the pains and the problems and the sufferings of our life and we're robbed from the very shine of the gospel that comes forth from that black backdrop. We're beginning a new study today, so I want to give you some history. It's our typical fashion to put everything into perspective so you know what it is that we're studying together, the book of, of Ruth. The author is unknown to us, and the timing, really, of the book is actually unknown to us. We do find at the very end, the last chapter, a reference to King David. We have no reference to King Solomon, so perhaps the writing of the letter was somewhere during the life of King David, but before Solomon was even born. The events we know, it tells us that in verse 1 of chapter 1, the days of the time of the judges. It really is quite interesting to look at the book of Judges, the book that just precedes this book and the book of Ruth. They're, they're going hand in hand. It's the time of the Judges, so the book of Judges and the events of, of, of the book of Ruth are, are happening, at the, happening at the same time. But you couldn't get two completely different books than you could these two. In the, in the book of Judges, you'll remember there that, that the, the, the Israelites, the children of God, rebel against God. They run from him as far and as fast as they can. And God sends a judge. And the judge calls God's people to repentance. And they respond. They're weeping and gnashing of, of teeth and, and sprinkling themselves with, with ashes and sackcloth and so forth. And they come back. And they come back only to sin again, to rebel and to wander off, for God to send another judge. This pattern is repeated over and over and over in the book of Judges. It's a pattern that's repeated showing the chaos of life and lawlessness that the, the judge comes declaring the law of God and they're running from it. But Ruth opens up in this this pattern of, of gentleness and quietness. And there is throughout the entire book a very high regard for the law. It's not a lawlessness like the book of Judges, but a, a high regard for the law. The whole idea of them waiting for, for Naomi to have two more sons was all part of the Jewish custom. When a man died, his wife became the property of his brother, and his brother would inherit all that, that he had, plus he would take his wife to be a, a second wife, a third wife. So there's all kinds of opportunities for us to see this 
this affection for the law, the complete opposite from what we find in the book of Judges. The one word summary for the book of Ruth is actually a phrase, kinsman redeemer. We don't use that name very often, but literally translated it means closest relative. Boaz becomes known as Ruth's kinsman redeemer. We will read it next week in chapter 2. We'll read it the following week in chapter 3. And we'll read it the last week in chapter 4. That Boaz becomes Ruth's kinsman redeemer. Closest relative, but even closer than that, the one who gives everything for her. Boaz becomes a type of Christ, a real historical person, but a type of Christ that's pointing to a greater kinsman redeemer that's found only in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have this whole connection of David at the end of the account to point us to David's greater son, the Lord Jesus, who is born to us in the opening chapters of the New Testament. But get this, the one most important fact for you to know about the book of Ruth is this. Ruth was a Gentile, and Ruth was the great-grandmother of King David. Wow. Wow. This is hope for us, friends, hope for the Gentiles, that, as Paul says, we are engrafted in, in Romans chapter 11, the engrafting in of, of the Gentiles, because Ruth now, a Moabitess, becomes the, the great-grandmother of King David, the apple of God's eye. She is a direct correlation, a connection of the descendants from her offspring to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Here is a picture of God's covenant, friends. His covenant with one individual family that starts in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve to one ethnic family, the Jew, that becomes one elect family, the Jew and the Gentile alike, of which we are part of that body. That Ruth would be the great-grandmother of King David, who would be the direct line to Jesus Christ, who is from the house and line of David, only gives us a beautiful picture that before the foundation of the world, God had ordained and decreed that we would be part of this covenant community. Now back to chapter 1. In verses 6 through 22 of chapter 1, Eleven times there is a Hebrew word that is uh, repeated. Eleven times a Hebrew verb that is repeated. We translate it differently in our English translation, but it translates this way. Go back, return, or turn back. And what we find in the beginning here then is this beautiful picture of how it is that they have wandered away from God out of the promised land, into a land that they should have never been, but God shows his covenant faithfulness and says to them, turn around, go back, and gives us a picture of the salvation that he offers and the responses from three individuals in chapter 1 to this salvation promise that is ours and our kinsman redeemer. Three ladies that we're introduced to in chapter 1. And the first lady is Naomi. And what we're going to do here is look at the beginning of when things are kind of click and then the end to show how it is that this, this salvation that is promised is, is responded to. 
We find at the very beginning then that, that Naomi is leaving with her husband and her two sons, leaving Bethlehem, the promised land, and they are headed to Moab. Now let me give you a map. Look up here very quickly. Here's the Mediterranean Sea, all right? On the east side of the Mediterranean Sea, a small sliver of land is the promised land. And up at the top of the promised land is the Sea of Galilee, and then the Jordan River comes out of the south side of the Sea of Galilee for 60 miles into the Dead Sea. On the northwest side of the Dead Sea is Bethlehem and Jerusalem. Moab is way over here on the southeast side of the Dead Sea. Egypt is over here. When they left Egypt and they wandered in the desert, they wandered all down in here and they came up around the bottom side of the sea, uh, the Dead Sea and they came into Moab and Moses died there. He was buried there. He saw the promised land on the other side of the Jordan River but he didn't get to go in. It was Joshua that led them in where they set up their Ebenezer when the river Jordan was split into two and they passed by on the other side and they came back out of Moab and into the promised land. We are down here. They left here and they went all the way down here because it was a fertile land and famine had come to Bethlehem. So the early days then we find this. In Deuteronomy 23 and two other places in the Old Testament, the Israelites were commanded not to have anything to do with the Moabites. And here Elimelech and Naomi and their two sons are going to the very place where they had been told three times in the Old Testament that they are not to go. They are not to, to, to commingle with the Moabites, to have anything to do with them, much less to intermarry as Naomi's two sons do. So at the very beginning, they're leaving the promised land that they should have never left, to go to a place that they should have never gone, to marry two women that they should have never married. But in God's good sovereign providential plan, it's all part of his covenantal promises that he gives. Because look at verse 6. Look at verse 6. Naomi heard in Moab, she's in Moab now, but she heard that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing bread for them. The famine that had once come to Bethlehem, now Naomi hears that God says, go back, return, turn away from this place where you are not supposed to be to go back to the very place that you are supposed to be because I have blessed the land there. I am providing bread. I am providing food. She left because of famine. She is going back because of the promise of the blessing of God. Do you see that? The black backdrop. It was a, a painful time in, in Bethlehem. There was famine, nothing to eat. And so she and her husband and her two sons left. But now she has heard that God has restored the blessing to Bethlehem. Back into the promised land. And he is saying, come back, Naomi. Come back to the place where you are supposed to be. So look then how it ends. In verse 20, 21, and 22 of chapter 1, she comes into town, the women of the town say, can this be Naomi? And she says, don't call me Naomi anymore, which means pleasant, but call me Mara, which means bitter, because I went away full and I came back empty. Well, she didn't really go away full, did she? There was famine in the land, but she went away full because she had a husband and she had two sons. And now she's coming back into the promised land with no husband and no son but dear friends, even though she gives uh, the attention on the reason, the, the place, look what she says in verse 20. The Lord Almighty has caused my life to be 
very bitter. It is the Lord Almighty who brought this misfortune on me, she says in verse 21. She understands the disciplining arm of her Savior because now she has come to this place. Look in between those two. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back. And there is the gospel. The Lord has brought her back. She left because of famine, but she heard the return of blessing, and she now hears the very voice of her Savior saying, come back and be restored. Her response to the salvation that is offered is a restoration. She comes back into the covenant land with her covenant people because of the covenant promises of God to restore her, to bring her back to the place that she is called to be. So dear friend, let me ask you, is, is your life Naomi? Are you the prodigal child today? Have you wandered away from your covenant God who has offered you salvation in his only begotten son? Have you wandered away and you're now rolling around in the slime, in the pig slop, only longing to be back into your father's care? Here is the good news. Your heavenly father, like the prodigal's father, is standing there waiting, saying, come back. Come back and be restored. Be restored into the covenant salvation, the covenant promises that I give to you. If you're here today, beloved, and you're hiding it so well, on the outside your life looks so good, you've got your Sunday go to meet and clothes on, you've got the smile, you've got the, the crest white strips on your teeth so that you're smiling big and bright, and your life is a sham, it's full of bitterness and pain and suffering, and the black backdrop has caused you to run away from your God to the land of Moab, then the good news of the gospel and Ruth is he's standing there like this saying, come to me all ye who labor and are weary laden and I will give you rest. The second woman that we are introduced to, Orpah, we read about her in verses 8 through 14. At the beginning of her life, look what Naomi says about her in verse 8. Go back home, go back, and may the Lord show kindness to you as you have shown to me and to the dead. Kindness there, this is what every pastor loves to quote this Hebrew word, it's chesed. The word chesed from which the Old Testament means covenantal love, covenantal blessing. You have shown me chesed, Naomi says. So the beginning of Orpah's life is this, she's displaying this covenant affection. She has now joined herself with Naomi. She's joined herself with a covenant community, a small covenant community, but she is living in that covenant community. She's living this chesed together with her mother-in-law and with her husband before his death. That's how her life begins. But then Naomi says, now listen, and she's pointing to the law. Here's my law. Just go back. Because, you know, I'm an old woman. I can't have any more children. And even if I could have children, uh, the Hebrew law was that, you know, you would save yourself for the next son in line and he would marry you, but I have no next son. So even if I, even if I had relationships with a husband tonight and I got pregnant tonight, are you really going to wait? Are you going to wait until he grows up, cougar, and try to get this guy? <laughs> you know, and she's thinking to herself, no. No, I'm not going to do that. I've lived in this, I've lived in this chesed 
this covenant affection. But now then, look what she does in verse 14 and 15. She weeps again, and then Orpah kisses her mother-in-law goodbye. And she goes back home, verse 15, to her people and to her gods. Do you see what's happened? She realizes that she is not going to get any more of that covenant affection because she's not going to have another husband. And so where does her affection turn? To worldly possessions. She wants a husband more than she wants a savior. She wants a home more than she wants a savior. And so salvation is offered to her. She had been living it. She had been living in the chesed. She had been living in these covenantal promises. And now when she gets a picture of what life is going to be like, what does she do? She turns and she rejects that salvation. And she goes back to her land and to her false gods. Friend, are you here today? And you're really Orpah. You have tasted You've drunk deeply of the well of grace through the ministry of Redeemer Church. You have drunk deeply of the well of grace that is yours from a a loving, covenant, faithful, chesed Savior who extends his affection to you. And you've rejected it. You've tasted it, but now you're rejecting it. Perhaps some of you here today, you're you're being forced to be here. Young person, you're here because mom and dad have forced you to be here. And if I would just shut up, you could get up and get out of here. But I'm not going to shut up. (laughs) Or maybe your husband has forced you to be here, or your wife has forced you to be here. You have tasted of the well of grace, and you have turned your back on it. You have rejected it because you're saying to yourself, This life that I'm living isn't fair. My black backdrop stinks. I've experienced so much pain, so much suffering. I've lost so many loved ones. It's not fair. I deserve a greater life. I deserve a better life. Let me tell you this, friend, if that's you, listen. The life that your Savior promises you is an eternal life. The life that you're living here is not. You cannot take these things with you as much joy as you think they are bringing to your life today. There is no eternal life in the things of this world, but only in the life that is to come. Don't reject it by sticking your eyes, fixing your eyes on worldly possessions, but fix your eyes on a Savior who says, here I am, here I am. Come to me. The last, third and last woman that we are confronted with in this passage is none other than Ruth herself. Look at verse 15 through 19. We find this beautiful picture now where she's heard the same thing that Orpah heard. I'm an old woman. I'm not going to have any more children. And even if I do, are you really going to wait are you really going to wait? And how does, how does Ruth respond? Look at verse 16. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Do you know what the summary of the covenant is? As a reformed person, you ought to know the answer to this. If you don't, write it down. Here is the summary to covenant theology. I will be your God and you will be my people. 
We read it in the book of Genesis, we read it in the book of Revelation, and we read it in several books in between. And here it is. Ruth is reciting it. A Moabitess, a Gentile, is saying, I believe in a covenant God. Yahweh, your God, is my God. What is happening? She is being born again. She's being rebirthed. She's being converted. She is being reconciled to her heavenly Father. She is being regenerated. The salvation that God promises, she has lived. She has seen. And now she sees it to the full. Your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. And where you go, I'm going to go. I am one of you. I am part of the new Israel. I now am engrafted in. And this God, your God, is my God as well. Boaz confirms that for us. We'll see it next week in chapter 2, verse 12, where Boaz says, May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Do you see it? Salvation has been offered to her as a Gentile, and she's, she's grabbed hold of it. She's clinging to it. She has been born again, rebirthed into this gospel community called Israel. Now I want to show you something at the end then. Friends, this is what gets our... our uh, Crank turning right here. Here is Reformed Theology 101. Look at verse 6 and then look at verse 22. In verse 6, Naomi in Moab hears that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing, my translation says food. So your translation may say bread. The Lord had come to the aid. He blessed his people back in the promised land by providing bread for them. Look at 22. Naomi Returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth, the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, arriving where? In Bethlehem. Which means what? The house of bread. And look at the timing. Just as the barley harvest was beginning. She had heard of the covenant promise, the blessing of God. Go back to the promised land because God is blessing the land with bread. And she comes into Bethlehem, the house of bread, in time for all of the harvest of those things that would be the making of bread and the very place which would become the birthplace of the one that you recited the gospel for today. What? I am the bread of life, the Lord Jesus Christ born in Bethlehem, the house of bread, and would be the bread of life. Do you see that verse 6 to verse 22, the covenant promise of God before the foundation of the world. He determined one individual family would become one ethnic family that would become one elect family, Jew and Gentile alike. Israel would become the new Israel, and the Gentiles would be part of that. That's you. That's me. He's giving us the gospel and he's calling us to respond. Friends, in the, in the context of your black piece of velvet called your life, your black backdrop, is Jesus sufficient for you? Are you Ruth? You see the gospel for what it is and you see your Savior for who he is, and you are clinging to him because you understand that while your life may be filled with tragedy, yes, it is not a life that will endure forever, but the giver of life eternal, abundant, and free is your Savior in whom you find full sufficiency. 
You are utterly dependent upon him and you are basking in the goodness of a covenant God and his chesed that he is lavishing on you in the person who is the bread of life. What a gospel. What a beautiful gospel. Right here in the Old Testament, Genesis 3.15, the proto-uangelion, one is coming. Ruth knew that. Ruth knew one was coming. And here she is in the context of the time of the judges, and she, she hears that there's bread back in Bethlehem, and she goes back to the house of Bethlehem, and not only does she feed on bread there, but she feeds on the bread called her Savior, who gives her eternal life. I grew up in Dallas. I remember well getting on the bus, and we would go down to the Mrs. Baird's Bread Company, down by Lovefield Airport, and we would always get one of those little bitty loaves of bread. Remember on the way out? You'd get a little bitty loaf of bread to take home with you. And I remember the day. I remember it well when they didn't give us the bread anymore, but they gave you a little plastic bread, which was a, a, a piggy bank that had a hole in the top that you were supposed to save your money. And, but it looked like a loaf of bread. But I'll never forget walking in to that place. Every year we would go... Fresh baked bread. Is there anything better? Mac macaroni grill, smelling that bread, that rosemary bread and that olive oil. Is there anything better? I wonder if that's the smell that's in your nose today with the gospel. Jesus came and died for you. And he is the bread of life who is extending salvation through the general call of the gospel to respond. Will you be restored if you've wandered away? Will you continue to reject because you think your life has been dealt a bad hand? Or will you be reborn again, rebirthed, reconciled to your heavenly Father and the smell of the bread of life would be an ever so sweet savoring smell to the nostrils of your life today and forevermore. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father in heaven, what a joy it is to know that you are this kind of a God before the foundation of the world that you decreed that we would be yours. You called us savingly into your body, into your house. And you did that through the finished work of Jesus. So, Father, thank you for the salvation that is ours. I pray today, Father, for one perhaps who is here that needs to be restored, the prodigal that needs to come home. In the quietness of this moment, would you be that still, small voice and call them. I pray for the orpus, those that are rejecting the gospel because they feel like everybody else has something great and they don't. Would you show them the, the greatness of yourself and the beauty of your gospel? And then I pray for the Ruths, those perhaps, Father, that have dwelt here and tasted deeply of the well of grace, and today would be the day of their salvation. Today would be the day they would hide under the wings of the one who was their refuge. Father, thank you for this gospel, and thank you that it's all about your giving it. Cause us to respond to it today for an eternal investment into the life that you promised to give, life with you forever and ever, world without end. Amen.
Let's respond, friends, by singing uh, hymn number 481, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. I'm going to ask you to remain seated. If you're seated on the inside row, would you reach forward, please, and grab that black pad under the seat in front of you. Print all of the information requested there, then pass that pad down so that everyone can give us a record of their attendance. And then lastly, our ushers are coming to collect our offering that we might now give uh, to this eternal investment, this eternal kingdom that knows no end. Let's give sacrificially. Remain seated, 481. Let's sing.